And good morning. I'm Sarah Wright, sitting in for Jen Prakachi on the Cannabis Hour this week. There is a lot going on in cannabis this week, and a lot of people working really hard to come up with workable cannabis policy that takes the needs of growers, um, neighbors, and the environment into consideration. And we know that the board passed Chapter 2218 last month. That's the Cannabis Cultivation Ordinance supplanting Chapter 10A17, and it's set to go into effect tomorrow since it takes 30 days for an ordinance to become law after it's approved. In that month, there have been two referendum efforts in the county, one to repeal 2218 in its entirety and another to repeal a footnote, allowing for 10% of qualifying parcels to be used for cannabis cultivation. The deadline to hand in the petitions for those referendums is 5 o'clock today. But the People's Referendum to Save Our Water, Wildlife, and Way of Life handed theirs in early, day before yesterday, and I hear they're pretty confident they have at least the 3,400 signatures they'll need for the Board of Supervisors to either repeal Chapter 2218 or put it on the ballot. And there'll have to be a special ballot within 88 days, and Assessor Clerk Recorder Katrina Bartlemay says it's not going to make it onto the governor's recall ballot, so there may be a special election just for that. Uh, Small is Beautiful, or the 10% referendum, were getting their last signatures in yesterday, and they plan to turn in their petitions today. And they might have a legal fight on their hands, since there's a legal opinion out there that their desire to get rid of the footnote is too narrow for the supervisors to consider. And we all know there are a lot of legal opinions out there, so we don't know what's going to happen. So now that I've laid out a little bit of the situation that's going on, I want to introduce my guests. And it's not going to be a debate today. It's just two points of view from people working hard on cannabis policy. Uh, My first guest is Hannah Nelson. She's a longtime cannabis attorney and activist who's donated a lot of her time and expertise for decades, representing victims of the drug war and more recently offering analysis every step of the way on the process of crafting all the local ordinances. So Hannah is going to give us her perspective on how much work it takes to implement any ordinance. And we're going to start by talking about what happened with environmental health earlier this week. And our other guests are Ellen Drell and Kate Marionchild, representing the People's Referendum. And they're going to talk about what's next, since it it looks like they have every reason to think that um, they're going to be taken seriously. So... Welcome, all of you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Cannabis Hour. Good morning. Well, Hannah, yeah. Well, Hannah, I would like to start with you um, and what happened with environmental health earlier this week. There seemed to be a lot of confusion about what ordinance to implement. You know, are, are the legacy growers still operating under 10A17? Is the county supposed to wait until 2218 gets implemented? And in the meantime, a lot of growers were left not knowing what to do to put in their, their hoop houses, to, to baby along their, their juvenile plants and, and do what they needed to do. So can you help us clarify what happened with environmental health earlier this week? I can certainly try, and I am going to only refer to the press release from Environmental Health rather than try to quote uh, their motivation or, or you know, what happened from their perspective. Um, first, I want to step back, and, and it's understandable that people are confused. It is an incredibly uh, overwhelming time for everybody. 
everybody uh, who has to pay attention and understand the intersection of all these issues, both at the local level and the state level. There's so much going on. Not only uh, do we have our current 10A17 ordinance, which is, in fact, still applicable to those phase one and phase two operators who have applied, um, and those rules still apply to those people and they are trying to make their way through the application process as well as if they have already gotten an annual permit through the CEQA process that is specially uh, designed to assist those particular applications in coordination uh, with Cal Cannabis, which is now the Department of Cannabis uh, Control. Um, Essentially, what happened, as I understand it, with environmental health is that a number of applicants for ag-exempt structures, whether they were hoop houses or any other kind of ag-exempt building permit, they have to submit their permits and go through many levels of review within the county, and that's after they get CAL FIRE clearance. And one of the last steps before a building permit is issued is reviewed by environmental health. And apparently what happened was there was such a long backlog and delay. And for a a while, people just assumed that it's just the sheer volume that building and planning had of building permits, which, by the way, I want to say is is kind of a good thing, not only for income for the county, but also it shows that people are applying for building permits and doing it correctly, um, as opposed to, to not paying attention to those rules. At any rate, uh, the backlog, as it turns out, somebody wanted to get to the bottom of it, and they looked on eTrack it, the online building permit service, where you could look up where your building permits are in the queue, and noticed that they were stuck in environmental health and they called environmental health and happened to speak to somebody and found out that apparently there was a memo sent out to uh, environmental health staff uh, by one of the environmental health uh, directors or managers or something saying, don't process any more ag-exempt building permits for cannabis because we don't want to start processing something if it's not going to be allowed. Now, that's what we hear they were told. I wasn't a party to that conversation, so I have never heard that explanation directly, but I have no reason to to disbelieve that that's what they were told. At any rate, uh, a number of other people followed up and were were told a, a similar thing. And so it appears that the Department of Environmental Health stopped processing all cannabis-related reviews of building permits, and I'm not sure whether it was just for ag-exempt or or all or whatever. And it may be for one of two reasons. Either they could have been confused that the passage of 2218, the new uh, ordinance that no one can apply for yet um, somehow was taking over and that the referendums put it into question and therefore why do something that may not be approved or something of the sort or 
it, it, it could be the push to re- restrict ag-exempt hoop houses from uh, propagating uh, further was somehow misinterpreted uh, to apply to the current situation. In any event, it was clearly illegal what had happened. Um, building permits are a ministerial process and are as long as you submit the correct documents and you're not in violation of the codes that govern the rules about the setbacks and any other thing, they, they must be given. And it was not proper for environmental health to stop the processing of those building permits. It also it was uh, an amazing debacle because there has been so much continued vitriol against particularly cannabis cultivators who are in uh, the current program. They get conflated with illegal growers and rules. They're not getting permits. They're just doing things willy-nilly without, you know, following proper process. And and now we have not just the first example of the county completely halting processing of their permits. And when I say not the first time, I, I just want to be clear, not environmental health and not building permits per se, but at one point the former director of planning and building stopped processing 10A17 cultivation permits because they wanted to pursue a land use ordinance. Additionally, the board directed uh, the halting of processing of sensitive species and habitat review by the CDFW contracted person, except for to those uh, permits that were up for renewal. Those things have since been cleared up and, and permits are being processed. But there's a history of cultivators trying to make it through the system and then being halted by the county because somebody in the county decides that it might be wiser to stop under this old ordinance and let's just pursue something different. So that's, you know, kind of where we're at. I do want to say, though, I, I'm like Charlie Brown with the football where as discouraged as I sometimes get or upset about how things unfold and how hard I work to try and straighten things out, I'm ever optimistic that that each situation provides an opportunity. And one of the things that I noted in the press release of environmental health is that the last sentence says, environmental health will continue to work with our partnering agencies and regulated community in a collaborative manner to help facilitate moving these projects forward in a timely manner. Well, I look at that as an opportunity and in fact dovetails on a theme that I have been trying to get across recently and and throughout the years really to the county. And that is there are dedicated, experienced uh, operators experts, uh, practitioners, consultants who have been actively engaged in helping inform cannabis policy and, more importantly, implementation of processes and procedures. And it is imperative that the county set up a system where there's meaningful engagement 
with those experts and community members who understand the on-the-ground practical realities of what's going on, sometimes a lot better than the departments that are dealing with it before they implement a new process or procedure. And this was the theme of a letter that I recently wrote to the board on a matter of the equity grants. You know, we had cautioned years ago to please modify the local uh, equity program information that had to be submitted in a very, very quick manner when the county finally decided to apply and warned against certain programmatic features that the county had decided to include that we knew were going to be unworkable. And we were told, don't worry, it could be modified. We just have to get this in. And it never was. Well, now, years later, after many times of us, you know, requesting that they change it and pointing out that it's not workable, they're finally coming around and seeing, oh, yeah, I guess this isn't working. We have to change it. So it's just everything is an opportunity to look at the, the way in which all feedback and from all stakeholders. And again, that may be looked as as inefficient because sometimes when you bring a divergent group of people together to approach common sense problems, it can take a little bit longer to work through. But it's critically important because sometimes each little department doesn't understand the larger context of how all this stuff fits in. And I think that I know for sure um, that Ellen, your next one of your next guests and I have come together in the past to approach things from a pragmatic point of view and say, okay, we may have differing opinions about what should be done, but we can work together on how to make sure that what is done actually works. Right. And, and-, and that's one of my most common themes right now. Yeah, and and it's important to remember that after whatever happens, we're all going to have to to work together. And I do want to get to my next guest, um, Ellen Drill. You have been working really hard on this referendum issue, and one of the things that you've mentioned in several public forums is that you believe that ten a seventeen is still workable, and that that if your referendum passes and twenty two eighteen gets repealed, that that you think that uh, 10A17 could still be applied. So can you talk a little bit about that before we get into to what you hope to have happen next? Thanks, Sarah. Uh, I'll talk just a little bit about it, but but the, the, the primary reason I say that 10A17 works is because there are people getting permits through the, the process that 10A17 lays out. And I, I suppose most of your listeners know that 10A17 was the cannabis cultivation ordinance that was passed in 2017 and has, uh, you know, been much maligned over the years. And especially in the last couple of years when the, the county and certain elements in the county seem bent on creating this new ordinance, then uh, 
then 10A17 was, was held up as the reason for all the, the problems and it was unworkable and broken and all that sort of thing. But in fact, it is working. And yes, Hannah, I, I appreciate your talking about um, everything is an opportunity. And, and sometimes when you bring together divergent groups, although it takes longer, you come out with a better solution. And I know we've talked about 10A17, and I think we both agree that it can work. If uh, if the county uh, has the will and the and the commitment to to use 10A17 effectively and not keep putting it on hold and the people trying to get their permits through 10A17 in the waiting room while they come up with some some other solution. So in effect, I I mean you could say that this referendum is um, a gift to the county. Because at least while the, the campaign goes forward, the issue of a new ordinance is set aside. And the county has one choice for processing uh, cultivators, and that's 10A17. And no more stalling, no more backlogs, no more, well, there may be some backlogs, but, but no more artificial roadblocks. But 10A17 is the vehicle, and let's use it, and let's make it work. And I want well, to. I, I, oh, I just want to say, Sarah, that I there's a you know a concern that I have overreaching um, everything, which is the state annual license process, and I have been uh, vocal on the fact that without talking about the substance of my position on one referendum or another, my concern with not having a land use-based ordinance in place and effective is for those that under the current system will not be able to proceed despite, through no fault of their own but because of some of the structural mechanisms. And, and I don't want to get into all the details, but, you know, I do hope that there's an opportunity to continue to refine and focus on the processing of 10A17 applicants. But I have no doubt that these referendums are, in fact, a potential existential threat to existing cultivators. So I just want to be clear about that. And I guess just in response, I don't see it, and our group who's looked at it pretty closely don't don't see it as an existential threat as long as the cultivators are in, in compliance with the provisions of 10A17. But, but I agree it's probably not something we want to get into the, the weeds on here, but... Um, but those are issues that um, will require some of this painstaking discussion with divergent groups, I think. And I want to remind listeners that in about 10 minutes, I'm going to open up the phone lines. To, and the number to call if you have questions for any of our guests is 895-2448. And um, yesterday, Kate, you and I were talking a little bit about what um, the people's referendums to save our uh, water, wildlife, and way of life is hoping for in the future? Who you you view as your allies, and um, and how you'd like to to go forward in a cooperative way? So, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, uh, first, I want to say that in this period now, while the signatures are being validated and the 
new cannabis expansion ordinance, that's what we call it because that's what it primarily is, is suspended. We are hoping that the supervisors will take time to reflect on what this success, successful signature gathering campaign means and that they will seriously consider rescinding the ordinance. That will save them the trouble and expense of an election and will give them the opportunity to do the right thing and not expand cannabis cultivation without first doing an environmental impact report. And we're hoping that they'll take inspiration from Sonoma County's supervisors who passed a lousy, who did a lousy EIR, adopted an ordinance, and then responded to the hue and cry from their citizens. And the four supervisors who had uh, voted for this bad ordinance humbly said to the county, we made a mistake, we should have done a better EIR, we will shelve this ordinance until we do one. And we would love for the, our supervisors to uh, follow their example and take inspiration from them. And what we'll be doing uh, during this interim period is continuing to develop, develop our campaign and also reaching out to the legacy growers in the hope that we can create an alliance with them and that they will um, come forward as a united front to demand that their permit, that the county process their permits and also assist them in obtaining their annual licenses. And our allies in this are, as we were um, gathering signatures, we found that almost all, I, I mean, a, a huge, I would say the majority of people we talked to feel that this is a terrible time for expansion, especially during what we now think is not just a short-term drought, but a permanent uh, water shortage, rain shortage in our county, I mean, in, in the world, in California. And, um, and that it's, yeah, that it's just a terrible time for expansion. So our allies are people like uh, many members of the Farm Bureau, the sheriffs past and present, many current and retired firefighters, uh, people who live in neighborhoods that have been heavily impacted by cannabis and everybody who knows those people and feels uh, sympathy for them, as well as we're hoping the legacy growers. And I'm wondering if some of the the current research on water use is sort of setting your mind to, to ease a little bit about that. On Monday, the um, some scientists from the Cannabis Research Center at Berkeley made a, a presentation saying that they think that cannabis takes about enough, as much water as vegetables and so much less water than wine or almonds. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, they were saying that the estimate that cannabis plants take about six gallons each plant per day is really outdated. It's from the days when people were just trying to pump as much weed as they could out of one plant. And it seems like the, the days of the seven pounds per plant are over and people are growing smaller plants and learning how to use water a little bit more stringently. And I'm wondering if if that provides any any relief to you. 
Well, I'm not sure I trust that study. It's um, that group is funded by the CDFA. Um, and I think, you know, we know that CDFA is hoping to encourage cannabis uh, revenue for the state. And um, so I, I think we have to look at other studies and I, I'm not sure I trust it. And in any case, I would, I think most people in this county think that any crop that was expanding on an exponential level due to a high, enormous uh, um, profits to be gained would be something that we should resist, whether it was tomatoes or corn or soybeans or whatever. And so this is simply not a time for the county to be incentivizing more water use and also incentivizing the uh, carving up of our county into uh, lots of different parcels and with more fences and roads and all that stuff. But that's a different subject than the water. I, I think Ellen should also maybe weigh in on the, the water question. No, I think I, I agree. I agree with you, Kate. I, it's uh, water is scarce and likely to be scarce into the future, and and um, you know probably the rest of our lives. We're looking at a new weather regime, so uh, any incentivized additional water use, I think the entire community is very very concerned about. So. Um, in fact, when you say cannabis doesn't use any more than uh, vegetables do, well, then then it's a it's it's an important question to ask. Then, do we use the scarce water for cannabis, or do we use the scarce water for food? Um, I I understand the important role that cannabis plays in medicine and certainly in some people's lives, but nevertheless, it's about using more water and conserving water and looking at the reality of where there is any extra water, and the county hasn't done that. There are plenty of places in Mendocino County where there's not a drop of extra water, and there are valleys in Mendocino County that haven't even been, that haven't been thoroughly studied for their aquifer reserves. So it's premature to be incentivizing another agricultural crop that uses even if it's only as much as a vegetable garden uses. Right. And I was hoping to have um, Charles Sargenti or Jim Shields from Small is Beautiful, the, um, the so-called 10% referendum on, but they couldn't make it today. They're got a, they're, they're going to wait until the deadline to hand in their signatures and then they'll be ready to talk and I'll hope to hear from them next week. But one thing that Charles Sargenti said last week at a forum was that he feels that rangeland would be sufficiently protected under 2218 since it um, does not allow cannabis cultivation on rangeland parcels that have not already been cultivated to some form of, of legitimate agriculture. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, um, and your thoughts on the protections of rangeland. I just like to start out with the, how I define rangelands because I, I found while petitioning that a lot of people are mystified by this word rangelands and I probably most of our listeners today aren't but I consider I call rangelands or uh, I call the rolling hills that surround our inland valleys uh, the rangelands and they're mostly dotted with oaks and oak, 
uh, oak savannas, oak woodlands, and uh, some grasslands and chaparral. And the reason they're so important is that they are a uh, a biological, an unofficial biological reserve of what I believe is unparalleled importance in the Western United States as a sanctuary and refugia for wildlife. And um, they're, they're the uh, policy in the new ordinance that rangeland parcels that have been previously tilled sometime between 2000 and 2016 is um, not well defined, but even if it were, uh, I oppose, and, and Ellen does too, the expansion of any cannabis into rangelands. And that protection is currently uh, embodied in 10A17, the existing ordinance. It prohibits any expansion into rangelands precisely because uh, the impacts of cannabis would otherwise be uh, environmentally unsound. That protection was a mitigation against other impacts. And I think we need to respect that principle that, that Mendocino County's rangelands um, are so precious and they're so dry and they're so water shy and they're so wildlife rich that they are... Um, a, a um, resource that should not suffer the impacts of more roads, more disruption of wildlife corridors, loss of water, um, use of pesticides. And I know that all, some of these things are uh, supposedly eliminated in the new ordinance, but we never know how how well that will be enforced. And uh, so I'm, I, I don't agree with what Charles Sargenti said. Okay. And Ellen, do you want to say anything more about that? Well, I would just say that the, the, the protections, the supposed protections written into 2218 are, are loosely worded in, in one, um, you know, it's conceivable that even grazing land could be considered disturbed land. So the way that it's written in 202218 20, uh, really opens the door to pretty wide interpretation. And so that's one thing. Um, it could be, it also includes cannabis, uh, cannabis cultivation as an agricultural activity, even though the state doesn't exactly define it as that, but this ordinance would define it as that. So that means that uh, a previous site that had long since been abandoned could be a possible candidate for a new site. So lots of um, lots of ill-defined and, and poorly thought out wording is is included in 2218 around the rangeland issue. Uh, so and then on top of that, even if it were restricted, even if it were specifically restricted to a vineyard, um, there's still the, the supervisors nor anybody else had any idea how many acres this would mean. There were never any. There was. There were never any maps. There were never overlays of vineyards on rangeland or previously disturbed land on rangeland. So not only were there no number of acres, but there was no idea really where these sites might be. 
And what would the context be? Were there any roads? Were there any utilities? I, I mean, it was it, it was thrown in there pretty carelessly and blindly. So really, the impact is is completely unknown. So I I I also feel that Charles could make that statement, and I you know I respect that that's his opinion, but I don't think it's based on much. Okay. Well, Hannah, I want to get back to you and the the situation of legacy growers. Can you give us a little bit of of an idea of where they are and what the timeline is right now? We know that there's a moratorium on new applications with 10A17 and that 2218 is suspended or will be suspended soon. Um, can you Can you clarify that a little bit for us? I can certainly try. Um, 10A17, for those applicants who are already in queue, is still operational and will continue to be operational. The issue is really whether or not, uh, as I alluded to earlier, if because of the nature of 10A17, is not being able to condition certain um, compliance with the environmental restrictions, uh, not be able to uh, condition the permit on compliance with certain environmental conditions. Uh, Because it's been four years since the many of these applicants started the process and in fact we're in an unusual situation of having to look back and this is true of the entire industry you know the uh permitting processes and licensing processes for cannabis is unlike any other industry in that it took an existing industry and overlaid regulations that are meant for other industries that were not criminalized, were not uh, prohibited, and tried to make them work. And that's part of the difficulty here and why it's not necessarily uh, an end run around environmental laws to say that a land use-based ordinance may be needed to help make sure that there is a compliance with environmental laws. And so, you know, that gets into a a much deeper discussion. And as Ellen said, hopefully we'll have opportunities to continue to talk about that. I do have a question, um, you know, regarding the referendum that they're proposing. Um, But let me get back to where we're at right now. Uh, The county has issued a list of people who either through no fault of their own, but rather because the county um, did not properly process their applications or kept their materials, have to completely resubmit all of their materials through a portal that is opening only for 90 days. And I emphasize the only because it's rather outrageous. Like I have some clients who this year submitted complete resubmittals and not for the first time, multiple times throughout the years. Every time they were asked to submit something, they did and recently resubmitted everything. And 
in one instant, in one set that I compared, uh, both approved this, uh, both submitted this year. One was listed as having to go through a complete resubmission again through the portal, and one was not. And there's no indication of what the particular criteria is. And in, in looking at this further, it appears that, well, some, sometimes, the county, even this year, not long ago regimes that were deemed incompetent or misguided or under-resourced, but this year they were not even responded to or reviewed by by staff. And so it, it the, the myth out there is that it's all of the applicants who are trying to get away with something and not do everything right and that the county has, you know, sent out notices and people don't respond, et cetera. Well, there's another story. At any rate, I have a lot of empathy for the county right now. They do need more resources. They do need more planners. It's not about funding. It's about people resources and time. And so it's not that I do not understand the situation that they're in, but to overlay such rigid time requirements when applicants are being told to do a whole new process and then also overlay new forms and 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 new criteria when in fact uh their stuff isn't even looked at every time they do this every regime they've been told to do something different this time they're given such a tight time frame that if the county doesn't get to review their submission in time, they, they won't even have the opportunity to submit additional materials. It's just cut off. So anyway, that's something that I, I feel very frustrated and I'm looking forward to working with the county to see what can be done. Um, the portal, however, I, I do really want to commend the cannabis program and the IT department because they they, I think that they did a great job. I think there are issues that are problematic with it, but given the time that they had and what they had to do, I think that they did a really good job. And the informational session yesterday that was conducted was very helpful. And so I really want to commend uh, the work also. And I know that every person who's working on this is working very, very hard. With that said, again, the theme is we've got to do better. We've got to get these people processed in a way that doesn't vilify them, criminalize them, and make them feel like they were the ones doing something wrong when, in fact, they have responded to every everything every step of the way. The question that I have for our other guests is, what do you see if there are instances where a land use-based ordinance is required to be able to properly condition an annual cultivation permit at the local level in order for people to get their state license and where the person is, in fact, complying with 10A17, but because of the unusual situation of certain terms being ministerial rather than discretionary, what do you propose going forward to help those existing legacy cultivators who have tried to do everything right? What is your solution to that? Well, I can take a, uh, 
Uh, Hannah, I, I would respond to that or try to. Um, you know, I'm not down there at the county at, at the desk or in the office, and and so I get the information via other channels. So I don't exactly, uh, I, I can't, I'm not witness to the actual words that are exchanged between applicant and and planner. But my understanding is that arbitrarily, the cannabis unit is in the most rigid in um, uh, the, the most rigid and really not uh, not off, not not regularly used definition of ministerial ordinance versus a uh, discretionary ordinance or uh, so so they can say that if an applicant needs to make a change, let's say recommended by the California Department of uh, Fish and Wildlife in order to protect um, uh, a stream or a sensitive possible sensitive species area. If CDFW recommends a change, the county uh, is taking the position that this we we are operating under 10A17, and this is a ministerial ordinance, and therefore we cannot condition a permit. They they're interpreting, they're saying we cannot take this recommendation from CDFW and relay it to the applicant and suggest that, for example, they move their hoop house 50 feet away from the creek. They're taking the position that uh oh. That's that's conditioning a permit, and we can't do that under a ministerial permit. Our only option is to deny the applicant. Now, that's a pretty absurd interpretation of working with CDFW, and my understanding from CDFW is that, that if that were CDFW's interpretation of what to do with a recommendation, they wouldn't waste a minute reviewing the application. So... Can I ask you a question? Wouldn't it be more protective of the environment to be able to condition it, so to not issue the permit unless yes, the condition yes, is met? And yes, so wouldn't it be yes, favorable to have that land use-based system yeah, for those but what I'm saying, Hannah, that it's, it's not a voluntary thing? No, it, it isn't. It isn't. Well, what difference does it make? If, I mean, we have this ordinance that certainly allows CDFW to communicate with the county and the applicant in order to make adjustments so that there is no impact to sensitive species. I mean, there's nothing in 10A17 that says you can't have that conversation. In fact, 10A17 has a provision that says you need to have that conversation. That's what I'm saying. It's a totally arbitrary choice on the part of the county to inter to have this absurd interpretation that they cannot communicate to a willing applicant that they need to move their hoop house. And the, so well, I agree. I agree with that, that that there is particularly a provision for that kind of back and forth, which for other, you know, for listeners out there, that is what's intended by CEQA you know, is that back and forth process. It's disclosure and back and forth so that um, 
the known boundaries of the project and the impacts are assessed. It's not necessarily an outright rejection of the project in, in, in total. Uh, and yet, you know, the reality is, is that Ellen, if, if people are, are having that conversation, but let's say they say, no, I, 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 I can't do, I'm not sure. It will take more studies to determine whether that's in fact needed or not, or, or whatever the case is. We're, we're in this construct with the state and the provisional licensing system that is untenable at the moment. And I have a lot to say about what is needed to be done at the state level to overhaul that system, because I think that that is largely what is responsible here. And again, additionally, the overlay of an existing industry with important protective environmental rules for, for having good stewardship, it, it, those are important, but we're trying to put, I say, a, a round peg through a square hole through a triangular door. It's, yeah. it's, it's mind-bending. Yeah. Additional... Yes, go ahead. I would say, you know, we've had this conversation a lot. And, um, and the fact of the matter is uh, where the uh, it's a mystery. As, I, I mean, I've been told by the current cannabis manager that if CDFW recommends, for example, rocking a road or moving a hoop house, and even if the applicant is willing to do those things, that it is the decision of the cannabis manager uh, based on presumably a, an opinion from county council that, that that cannabis unit cannot communicate with the applicant about these changes that need to be made. Their only choice is to deny the applicant. So to me, that is so absurd that that constitutes obstruction, obstruction of the working of 10A17. Now, so but there, may be, there may be other examples and other situations that don't fall into that, that, um, in, into that category. And, and possibly, you know, there may be, need to be some adjustments or some uh, uh, you know, workshops so that there's understanding between applicant, the public, and the county and county council as to how these things are being interpreted. But to my understanding right now is it's it's loud and clear, it's obstruction and and it's deliberate, rigid interpretation of a ministerial ordinance that isn't supported in in our ordinance or in law. Certainly isn't isn't supported by CDFW. And why would they do that? Because there's a, there's been a clear pattern of a desire to make 10A17, our existing ordinance, look like a failure in order to pass this new land use ordinance, which and you know land use permits have their place. In fact, there's a re, there are some instances in our existing ordinance that require a use permit. So we're not categorically opposed to use permits in every situation. But this new ordinance is primarily about allowing expansion. And that's why we have wanted this referendum, because the expansion is irresponsible without an environmental impact report. It isn't that there are there's a place 
probably in some instances for use permits. There is a place, like I say, there are some required in 10A17. But, um, but just looking closely at, at, at these absurd roadblocks and, and nonsensical interpretations, it, it translates to me as a deliberate effort on the part of the county to make 10A17 be a failure in order to pass this new ordinance. It is a land use ordinance. Granted, it might be easier in some instances, but the main the main issue or the main the main thing in this new ordinance is the big expansion provisions. That's what. Well, they- and I appreciate that. I just I think that there's a lot more to it with regards to state licensing and the requirements of the state and the state's current interpretation of what's required. And everybody knows that I am extremely vocal and critical of the county when the county messes up or is obstructionist. And I am not hesitant to call them out and criticize them and take the opportunity to work with them to create solutions that will work. However, I, I, I have to say this is not just a, 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 a local plot to you know, obstruct and delay. And there are instances of obstruction and delay in hopes that a new land ordinance. But part of the reason is to be able, and I'm not justifying it at all, uh, but the land use-based ordinance and conditioning of permits is the sensible way for cannabis to be dealt with. And at least under the current interpretation of what's required for an annual state license. And, and one of the deficits of the history of the cannabis program over the years is that the, the state and the county were not on the same page. And that was both failures, not just the county, not just the state. Both were guilty of extreme miscommunication or lack of communication and i've got a lot to say about how the state has handled this as well and like i said it is imperative that there be overhauling structural reform with the way that cannabis licenses at the state level are dealt with in order to address these fundamental round peg square hole triangular door issues at any rate, I I, I, uh, I I hear what you're saying, Ellen, and I understand that your focus is on this expansion, but I believe that unwitting legacy cultivators who have tried to do everything right are going to be the victims of not having something in place that, right or wrong, is required of them right now. And that's where I'm coming from. I totally appreciate the sentiments that you've expressed, but... My focus is on making sure these people who for four years have done their best through every regime change, every miscommunication, every form change, every everything, and they may, at least a good portion of them, be left in the cold. All right. We have a, we have a caller. So let's, let's bring someone else into the conversation. Caller, you're on the air. You've got to turn off the um, radio. Speak for the Cannabis Hour. Thanks. Hello? Yes. Yep, you're on the Cannabis uh, Hour. Hi. 
Hi. Um, I just had a question um, regarding how the referendum is going to impact things going forward, and I'm wondering if maybe some of the solution to protect the current um, Phase 1 operators is if they the, the board could agree to conducting an environmental impact report to assess any, um, you know, to, to assess the expansion that's being uh, proposed in the ordinance, but allowing the ordinance to still move forward otherwise, and uh, uh, but only for the people that are coming in from the transition of twenty of ten a seventeen to twenty two point one eight, um, and for anybody that's uh, wanting to stay under a ten thousand square foot allowance, I wonder if the uh, people that are that you guys are supporting this referendum would maybe um, consider that a really good compromise. Um, and I wonder if we could still somehow find a way to make everything work. So I'll take my answer off there. Thank you. Right. That's a great question. And is it still possible to do an EIR on this ordinance? Or No, it's not. Uh, EIRs, environmental impact reports, have to be done before a project is adopted. It can't, they can't be done afterwards. Well, except that the no projects are being adopted under the new ordinance. There's a moratorium due to the drought emergency anyway. So I think that there's an argument that it could be done um, and that, in fact, you know, that is a sensible compromise to be able to have the protections and the analysis that is needed in order to judge whether or not our communities can sustain this environmentally or not or to what level and where and how and what conditions if any need to be put on it um and and at the same time have a structure under which the existing operators can plop over to if if they really need to and we've just got a few more minutes left but but hannah i want to ask you i know that expansion is a, a delicate topic but um, under this ordinance, um, the current ordinance, it has been impossible for new applicants to, to go through. And I'm wondering, you know, what it will take for for new applications to come in and, and operate legally, since I, I think a lot of the expansion that people are worried about that's happening is Ill- illegal expansion. So how can we how can we welcome more more law abiding growers into um into whatever program we end up adopting well i i think that you know with all due consideration to the drought emergency and the need to analyze uh conditions on the ground uh with respect to the environment i i really am am not discussing the expansion versus not expansion um what I think needs to happen is first we need to have a sensible policy in place which is balancing the needs of the community the environment and uh, the cultivators I'm particularly concerned with additional legacy cultivators that did not have an opportunity to make it through the door because for example equity funding was not yet available and because of the nightmare that this has been through each administration of the programs 
And, you know, at this moment in time, there's almost no bandwidth to consider reopening, whether it's under 10 AM 17 or under a new land use based ordinance for those people who have, for example, they didn't have proof of prior because they were a renter or they sold their property prior to the ordinance being passed. They had no idea, so they couldn't show the proof of prior on where they currently live now for many years and where there may have been a history of cultivation, but it wasn't by them. And so I'm particularly concerned about making sure that those people are folded into the mix I, I understand the concerns of people who have been not allowed to apply for these years in between the new people who have been waiting on the sidelines. And certainly some of them have uh, a, a, a very understandable gripe. However, I'm not sure that I agree with some opinions that claim that it is a breach of equal protection to not allow them to apply. I think that there are legitimate reasons why existing cultivation had to take a front seat and should still take a front seat. Okay. Well, so I don't know if that answered your question. It did. Thank you so much. And the time has flown by and um, we are going to have to leave it there. I see Ellen raising your hand. Do you have something that you can throw in in yeah, 30 I, seconds? Just quickly, I, I want to I say that our, our referendum is pretty sympathetic to the small growers and really, really are sincere about working with them to make sure that what the, the process with the you know with the referendum the pro the 10a17 works for them and just i would just toss out personally 10a17 has a phase three and and the board of supervisors could reopen phase one under 10a17 so there are options all right for the cannabis hour i'm sarah wright sitting in for jen Percacci, who will be back in two weeks we've heard from longtime cannabis attorney and activist hannah nelson and kate Marienchild and ellen drell from the people's referendum to save our water wildlife and way of life thank you so much for tuning in next up is portrait and jazz with ron hoffer this has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.